You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Thanks to the praise team for leading us in that way. We're going to turn our Bibles now to Genesis 5 and 6 as we start with this new series, Reclaiming the Rainbow. I don't know how you're feeling about yourself today. Uh, Some of us are concerned about the pimple that's appeared in the end of our nose from nowhere. Some of us are worried about the fact we're carrying maybe a bit too much weight. Maybe others were concerned about how we were pulling into the car park today or the clothes we were wearing. Or There's something we're always that little bit self-conscious about. All of us have a view of ourselves. And it would be easy to come to church on the first Sunday of November and think that we have our problems here, but then the Bible's out there somewhere and there's no connect in any way whatsoever. Well, I want to illustrate for you in Genesis chapter 5 that that is not the case. First of all, notice with me in Genesis chapter 5 today, humanity, it's all about real people. Real people. Of course, there are lists. It's a big list of names. But those names had faces and homes and addresses and families and children or elderly parents, people with spots on their noses, worries in their minds, work to go to, smiles in their faces, or tears in their cheeks. Genesis 5 is a list of names, but from Seth to Lamech, each one held hopes and dreams for their lives, just like we do today. Genesis up until this point has been a staggering introduction. We've got the cosmic uh, introduction to the excitement of creation. We've got God speaking the world into existence. And then suddenly we come to the crash in chapter 3 where sin enters the world. But here in Genesis chapter 5, it reminds us of something critically important right at the outset. Have a look at verse 1 and you'll see what I mean. God created mankind and God made us like God. I find that absolutely staggering today. God created mankind And God made you and me like him. Let that settle in your hearts today. Let me say directly from the youngest child who's sitting here today or watching at home on their TV or their laptop, you were God's idea. God dreamt you up long before you appeared as a little bundle. You were made like him. And to live and to make and to build and enjoy and to smile and to feel and to love and forgive just like God. God made you. And we often say that almost as a patronizing way to our kids, but it's fact. God made you. Everyone sitting here today is in the image of God. God made you. And something else that we need to get our minds around that's really helpful here in this day and age, for any of some of you are struggling with us either in school or at home or in your family, look at verse 2. And he made us male and female. God made you to be a boy or a girl. God chose to make you what you are. God chose it and gave that to you as a gift. And whether you've got brown or blue eyes, you're taller or shorter, you're good with animals or machines, good at maths or art or music, or better at cooking or running or writing, we were created by God, like God. 
I think we need to hear that today. We are not just some random acts of scientific chance that crawled out of a prehistoric swamp millions of years ago. We are people created by God. Your life matters. Your life really matters. And that's why the rest of chapter 5 really stings. It really hurts. A group of mates and I used to play a game every Saturday at 5 p.m. whenever all the football matches used to be played on a Saturday, not on this nonsense of Thursday nights and Monday nights. It was 5 p.m. The results came through and you sat and you listened to the radio as all the results came through. And you could tell by the intonation in the newsreader's voice what the score was going to be. Let me give you some examples. West Ham United 2, Liverpool 0. You could tell. Now here you can play along with me on this one. Preston North End 3, Brighton and Hove Albion. No, 1. You got it wrong. It was 1. That was 1. They did sneak 1 at the end. Or this one. This is always my favourite. 4 4 4, East 5. 5. Of course it has to be, doesn't it? But like reading the football results on Saturday afternoon, look at verse 5. Genesis 5, verse 5. Adam lived a total of 930 years. And then he died. And that's the repeated refrain all the way through this chapter, isn't it? Verse 8, verse 11, verse 14, verse 17. Verse 21, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Lots of life. Boys and girls, have a look down that list and see how old some of these guys lived for. But there was always death. There are helpful glimpses towards the end of the chapter that encourage us and brighten us a wee bit. There's Enoch who walked with God. There's Methuselah who lived just short of his thousandth birthday. But none of them lived forever. Interestingly, and this is a fact, you can look this up later for yourselves if you're interested. Did you know there's an organization around today called the Methuselah Foundation? There it is on the screen. Whose aim as a non-profit organization is dedicated to extending the healthy human lifespan by advancing tissue engineering and regenerative medicine therapies. It offers cash prizes, if any of you are up for this, for anyone who can break records in the length you can get mice to live. There's one guy who's got a mouse to live for 40 years, which apparently is eight times longer than the average mouse. So he's good going. But also the same guys are connected with a group who are involved in Cyronics. I think that's how you pronounce it. And there are 250 people. I didn't know this. There are 250 people who are currently preserved, frozen immediately after their death at 196 degrees below freezing. But unfortunately, no one yet has the technology to thaw them out. Or revive them. But you see, death is not how it was meant to be. Genesis chapter 1 tells us we were meant to run and reign with God and walk with him in the garden forever. But we chose not to. We chose the way of sin. We chose the way of Adam. We want to be God of our own lives. God said don't and we said we're going to do it. God said it'll end in tears and we said we're going to take that risk. God said death and we said well, we'll suffer. And that sadness stretches down from all that ancient history. But here's the fact of Genesis chapter 5. You cannot cheat death. You cannot cheat death. Whether it comes suddenly or it's expected by accident, old age or illness, 
this week or next week, stroke or car crash, heart failure, dementia, bad fall or cancer. You see, that's what's really behind the intensity of these COVID months. Have you thought about it? That's really why we're sitting as we are today. That's really why we're wearing masks today. You know why? Because governments and scientists, bar charts and second waves, lockdowns, it's all because we're afraid of dying. Dr. Rachel Clark, who's an experienced palliative care consultant, wrote this in the first week of the pandemic. There is therefore a glaring imperative to confront the topic so many of us long to squirm away from, the inescapable fact of mortality. As a palliative care doctor, I am intimately acquainted with our reluctance to square up the dying and with the unintended harms of such squeamishness. Boys and girls, I can do the greatest favor I've ever done to you today by going to tell you today you're going to die. And some of you are sitting here today thinking you're going to live forever. And you ain't. I was saying with the men's Bible study yesterday morning, never visiting some of the older folks' homes and um, visiting in some of them with despair. A 98-year-old will say, oh, the woman in the, door, or the room next door died this week. It was tragic. She was taken so young. She was 92. <laughs> but that's the way people think. The older you get, the more you think you're going to go on forever. And you're not. But that's why I needed to say what I said at the start. You matter to God. You matter to God. Your life is a gift from God. You need to get that in your mind first before we deal with the death part. And that's why death hurts us. And death stings because it robs us of those relationships and it robs us of the people that we love. Death hurts. Genesis 6 then we go into it, we sidestep into Genesis 6, and we read there about depravity, this rebellious sin. I'm not going to go into Genesis 6, verses 1 to 5 in great depth today, especially about the sons of God, seeing the daughters of men and marrying those who chose. I touched on this a few years ago when I did a whole series in Genesis, because the wisest commentators often suggest all sorts of different ideas of what this might be. But the overarching theme is the increased involvement of Satan using his fallen angels quite literally in the affairs of men. If you want to read more about it, have a look in 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter 2, or Jude 6, and there you'll read more about Jesus preaching to the spirits in the afterlife who had been waiting for Noah, but they did not listen. So just as Satan the deceiver had been cast down from God's presence, luring Adam and Eve into this deadly trap, They'd seduced God's most prized creations, humanity, people like us into sin. This garden paradise, he's up to his old tricks again. He comes in all sorts of ways. And Satan wants to destroy us because we are God's. Because we are his most treasured possession, because we are the highlights of his creation, Satan has us in his sights. He wants to do all he can to target us. That's what these Nephilim are all about. Do you read about them later on, those verses 3, 4, and 5? These Nephilim, known as these giants of men, they were renowned for their brutal force. This was a culture that had been infiltrated by Satan, where violence was celebrated, raw power was rewarded, the ability to see and take any woman they wanted was the norm. And if you think I'm crazy, have a look down the top 10 list of video games today, and they all include violence celebrated, Raw power rewarded and the abuse of women. That's fact. 
And heaven help us if those are the games that we play regularly because sin and Satan has already won. Satan was still hatching his evil plots and seeking to destroy, smashing all that was good and pure and praiseworthy. And that is why I started where I did today. We need to be absolutely assured who made us and who made the people we're married to or the people we work alongside or the people in our community, all made in the image of God. We need reminding of a God who knows what's best for us, for how easy it is to be drawn into a culture that celebrates personal freedoms and my rights over someone else's. But as we read on in this chapter, the biggest challenge is not from the wriggling snake. It's not from the lips of Satan, but from our own personal sin. Let me make a statement today that I hope will stick with you. Sin is always an inside job. Sin is always an inside job. Anyone who says Satan made me do it is a liar. We sin because we're sinners. There's a very simple equation. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. That the more people there were on earth, the more trouble came. It makes sense, doesn't it? More people equals more sin. And these chapters have been bubbling up to bursting point. Chapter 3 was the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. Mankind chose death and deception over God's love. Chapter 4, the clouds continue to gather. I think it's tragic, isn't it? The very first child born to anyone in this world was a murderer. And the second child born to someone in this world was the victim. So there's nothing new in this world. There's nothing new in terms of tragedy. It's been there since sin came in. We read of lies and boasting. People who defy God's purposes. We have a man called Lamech in chapter 4 who took two wives when he should only have had one. Mankind has been messing about with marriage since the very beginning. That is not a new thing either. We seem to think we're the first generation to have thought about that. No, this has been going on for thousands of years. You may have heard this very simple description, but boys and girls, I hope you can remember this. Three things that sin does. Sin spoils, sin spreads, and sin separates. Sin spoils everything. Whenever God looked at us when we were created in Genesis chapter 1, what did God say of humanity? We were very good. But sin gets in everywhere. And sin spreads everywhere. It's in your heart and mine. It's in the life of your children and your grandchildren. It's in the selfish grab of a toy, the tantrum over wanting more. There is no nation that is sin-free. If there was an R rate of infection with regard to sin, it would be multiplying every day, any number of times. It's the most deadly and rampant disease. And sin separates. Sin enters our lives and creates divisions between husbands and wives parents and children, work colleagues and church members, colors of skin, neighbors and friends. Sin drives this inexplicable wedge between people. Sin ultimately separates us then from God. How sin can turn a respectable professional into a killer or a decent, honest man into an adulterer, an innocent-looking child into a thief, an upright lady into a vengeful, spiteful woman, a hard-working A-star pupil into an addict. Nothing resonates in my mind more than someone who stood at the door of Union Road shaking my hand when you were still allowed to shake hands and told me what a wonderful word I'd preached that day. But then I watched that same person walk out into the car park and berate someone for where they'd parked. Sin gets everywhere. It spoils everything. And it starts in here. 
And Jesus agrees. Matthew chapter 15 verse 19 tells us, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. You know it's not that we're always bad all the time, but it's true that every part of our lives is affected by sin. Let me give you an example. If I was to offer you this freshly opened bottle of water, seal's just broken, and you were thirsty, and you were to take it, but the thing I hadn't told you was an hour before, I had wiped around the end a cocktail of diphtheria and cholera. You would drink it and you would die. Nothing wrong with the water, but the poison gets into every drop. And that's the same for us, even in our worship here today. We might be worshipping from our hearts, but there's always that little taint of sin. There always is something. Every part of our lives. I heard Alistair Begg say this week, and I really like this. He says, our inner reality is one of destructive magnetism. We're always drawn. We are drawn to a daily desire to do our own thing and go our own way. But we're not finished. We need to be reminded of our God the one who works through his rescuing activity in human history. That's where we're going to finish today. We read in Genesis 6 verses 5 and 6 that in seeing the state of the world, the Lord was grieved. Man's sin did not take God off guard, but it hurt him to the very depths of his being. It's the regret of someone who loves deeply. And God feels the tragedy deeper than anyone. I want you to hear that today. God feels the tragedy of sin and death deeper than anyone. The words that are used here in verse 6, deeply troubled, are that of sadness that are reflected in at least three other parts of the Bible. One of them is in Genesis 38, where Dinah's brothers hear that Dinah has been attacked. She's been raped, actually. And they are deeply troubled. Well, you can imagine their, their response. The, the, this sister, their only sister, who they love deeply, has been attacked. And they're deeply troubled within it's the same two words that are used of David's reaction whenever his son Absalom dies. He was deeply troubled. Anyone who's lost a son or daughter, deeply troubled. It's the reaction of Jesus as he stands at the tomb of Lazarus where he was deeply moved in his spirit. And what are we told there? Jesus wept. I want you to have this picture in your mind today that the tears over your sin and the fact that you're going to die one day are on the cheeks of Jesus. He weeps over our state. It's a brotherly, fatherly, friendly response to those who've been affected by sin. It's the right response to evil. But in order to conquer sin, you've always got to have judgment, don't you? Now, judgment is one of those words that we don't like to use too often, but I think we forget that we make judgment calls all the time, don't we? Whenever you get into your car, wherever you parked it, what's the best way into town? Or as you drive a country lane, you swerve to avoid the potholes or the thorn bushes to the side of you. You've got a judgment call to make. Which way are you going to go? Or for family or friends, we make judgments over when's the best time to call them? Are they at work? Will they be at home? We're always assessing what's right for others. Giving a child a bag of sweets half an hour before dinner time. That's bad judgment. 
barging into your boss's office when the door is shut, there's a meeting in progress, and there's a sign in the door that says, do not disturb. That's poor judgment. Booking a two-week cruise just last week for around the Caribbean this Christmas. Sounds very nice. But that's a pretty bad judgment call, isn't it? So as God is the one who created us, he knows what works best for us. His judgment upon us is right. The world needed a thorough cleansing for sin, and sin cannot be taken lightly. If sin spoils, it's got to be dealt with. Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, we read of God's plans. He's going to wash the world clean, literally. There's going to be a deep clean of the world. So there's no evidence of that left. But see the glimmer on the horizon as we're introduced to Noah and hear of God's grace. Look at verse 8. We read, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Better translation that's on the screen would be, but Noah found grace. I love those three words. Noah found grace. It's the first time that grace is mentioned in the Bible. The very first time. So that makes it significant. And encourages us that where sin is found and where judgment's coming, there's always grace available. No matter how bad things get, how regardless the evil that surrounds us or the evil that we've done within us or the guilt that trips us up, God's grace is always there. Noah made that discovery. It says, Noah, find grace. And he looked outside of himself for help because Noah knew his own sin in the midst of a sinful community. And he found grace in God. Earlier in chapter 6, we've heard how the author described God's regret, his blotting out of sin. And then we've got Noah. And all of you know how I love these words and the word plays in the Bible. But look back at chapter 5, verse 29, where you don't need me to explain it. It's there for you in black and white. Noah is given the name that means comfort. Noah's name means comfort in trouble, rest in restlessness. In other words, though all of us deserve punishment for sin, there's always a comfort available in our troubles. We're nearly done. Where do we begin today? With that great list of names, humanity. Every one of us from Adam onwards has this pattern. Listen to the pattern. Born, live, die. That's the pattern of your life and mine. Born, live, die. But how does the New Testament begin? If you were to crack open the very first chapter, Matthew chapter 1, what are you confronted with there? Well, lo and behold, it's a list of names. It's a list of people. One after another after another, a great list of names who were born, who lived, and died. But the very last name in that list in Matthew chapter 1, is Jesus, who enters into humanity. And Jesus is not born, live, dies. Jesus is born, dies, and lives. Jesus put a huge, great, big spanner in the works of death to clog it up and stop it so that it would have no grip or hold on those whose faith and trust was in the grace provided by this God. He rises again. And he died, and she died, will not be the end for us. Because Jesus says in John 14, verse 19, because I live, you also will live. Oh, I long that that would be the story of your life too. 
that it would not be in the here and now, but it would be in the life to come. Earlier this week, COVID-19 took much-loved comedian Bobby Ball. He was one half of the double-act Cannon and Ball. He made a name for themselves in the 1980s on ITV. He was still working and he was still doing pantomimes until earlier this year. And no one who was personally acquainted with Bobby Ball would have been in any doubt about his very active faith in Jesus Christ. Bobby had been wild and unpredictable person, but in 1985, at his peak, he met with the Reverend Max Wigley, a Christian chaplain to the entertainment business. And despite his newfound fame, Bobby knew that something was missing in his life. This is what he says. Max and I talked for what seemed like hours. Amidst the tears, I poured out the hurt, fear, and guilt that had loaded me down for so long. We prayed and I handed my life over to God. It didn't seem odd. In fact, it felt like something I should have done years earlier. <laughs> There's some people sitting in Union Road today and you've got hurt and you've got fear and we've all got guilt. And I think lots of us like to shove away the fact that we're going to die. But you will only live after death if you believe in the one who conquered death and now lives. Are you longing for true rest? Do you feel despairing about life and death? True comfort in Genesis 6 was to come through one man, Noah, but an eternal comfort can rest and only be found in Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can bring us through the storm of God's judgment at death. Folks, today, won't you come back? Won't you join with me again? If you've drifted even for some time, come back to that place where we can find true peace. The one who keeps us safe through the storms of life, through the troubles yet to come. Friends, it's only in Jesus' death will the despairing find rest. Oh, I long you find it there too. Let's pray. Gracious God, for all among us, you're anxious, or hurting, or troubled, or weak. For all of us who are guilty and ashamed, we thank you for this Jesus who's put a spanner in the works of death and overturns it by his risen life. May we find our comfort in him today.